Thank you, Chris, and the team for leading us this morning. You guys are a blessing, man. Uh, really glad Chris, Chris is here with us this weekend. He's just been a, a blessing to our team, kind of pouring into us a little bit and hanging out with us. Someone I've gotten to know a little bit over the past few years, but uh, when he kind of communicated uh, in October, kind of his plans for the spring and summer, how he wanted to uh, kind of go through and start building some relationships with churches uh, in a different way than maybe he's done before. Uh, I was like, yeah, man, we want to help you out, want to be a part of that. So uh, happy to be able to bring him in here this weekend and have him serve with our team. Uh, and he's just really come with an attitude to serve. So I'm really thankful for that. If you want, after the service, he'll be out in the lobby. Uh, he has some CDs and some shirts. If you want to support him, kind of help him continue on his way as he's traveling through uh, and also help lighten his load when he eventually has to fly back home to Nashville, uh, that'd be a blessing to him. And I think you'll be blessed by the, by the music that he's written too. So... Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Bill, and uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to open God's Word together with you today. Um, last week, we wrapped up a series on prayer, the most of us, or the most we can do, sorry, and uh, I, did that, I did that last night too. It combined the story of us and the most we can do into one, made one title. So, um, <laughs> so uh, the most we can do, we went through the Lord's Prayer, and this week we start a new series about fear called Unafraid. Uh, and as always, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles back on the tables, uh, in the entryways. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep it. We want you to have one. Uh, if you just happen to forget your Bible, uh, please just drop it off after the service so someone else can grab it next week. Um, when we talk about fear, uh, there are a lot of things we fear and we're just going to start easy this week talking about the fear of death. Um, Yeah, I get, I get the light subjects here. I don't, I don't know. Joe's like, go, you got it, Bill. Go ahead. Um, so, uh, and the most recent uh, situation for me, you know, you go through these, these situations where something will come up and you'll just be reminded how frail and how short life can be. Uh, something will come up, either someone in your life will get a diagnosis or you will, or uh, you'll have a near-miss car accident, something like that, and you'll just be like, man, that could have... It could have ended really quickly. And uh, you start asking the what if questions. What happens if I die? What happens to my family, my loved ones, my kids? Am I ready for that? Are they ready for that? What happens after I die? We start asking all those questions, the what if questions. Uh, and for me, this recently happened when we went to the Philippines. And uh, we went with a team from our church to go support um, a Trash Mountain project church that we, uh, we help out in Santiago, Isabella, uh, in the northern part of the Philippines. And we had taken a team uh, with Trash Mountain to go out there. And the typical flight time from Kansas City to Manila, Philippines, is about 20 hours of actual airtime. And it's about 24 hours, all told, with all the layovers and whatnot. Uh, this particular trip was a little longer because when we got to Tokyo, it started doing this. And Tokyo is about the same latitude as San Diego. So they're not really used to this. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, was, we got on the plane, we were ready to go, and then it started snowing. It started snowing some more, and, and they have one guy with a de-icing machine, and he's up there on this little crane trying to, like, spray all these planes, and it's just not working. So we're like, all right, let's, we're going to stay in the airport tonight. So, uh, so we get off the plane, and we end up staying in the Tokyo airport, uh, which you don't sleep a whole lot in an airport, uh, if you haven't experienced that. It's not really comfortable. Um, so... 
Uh, while we were there, it was pretty amusing because, you know, you got the Tokyo news reporters and they're out on this, what we would call a light dusting of snow. And they're like, oh, slippery, you know. Uh, so anyway, um, and it, it's just the whole experience was kind of surreal. So anyway, we didn't sleep much on that flight and then, on that over that night. And then the next morning we flew out from Tokyo to Manila and that's about a five hour flight. And because I didn't sleep the night before, I slept the entire time when we weren't experiencing turbulence, which you still can't get up. And, and if you haven't traveled uh, on a long flight, what they encourage you to do is to get up and walk around frequently because otherwise the blood will pool in your legs and your legs will swell up. So they want you to get up and walk around and it's good advice. And I didn't do that because I was asleep. So, uh, so we get to Manila and my legs are pretty swollen. And uh, then we immediately get into this van that we're going to drive in while Jeremy and the other part of the team that was going to continue on further south for another leg of the trip, uh, while they were getting their kind of rerouted flight because they had missed their connecting flight. So we were sitting in the car for an hour uh, with my niece kind of up in front of me in this little tiny van uh, in like 90 degree weather. And then, um, then for another three hours, we drove through Manila rush hour traffic to get to the place where we were staying because Manila is one of the largest cities in the world. So, um, yeah, so by the time we got to the place we were staying, it was even worse. My legs were more swollen and I had, uh, what I can only describe is a really strange tingling or buzzing sensation in the left side of my face and my left arm. So I was concerned and, uh, you know, you go to Google, which is the worst possible thing you can do. Yeah, I did that. And, uh, we were going to fly the next morning to go to Santiago Isabella, go fly north to the place where we were helping out the church. And so, you know, you start reading all these things that could happen, blood clot, going loose, whatever. And given my family history, it wasn't too far of a reach that something bad could happen. And so I got really concerned. I started to be afraid for my life. In all honesty, that's probably the most scared I've been for my life ever. And talked to a couple of nurses who were uh, around in our trip and Jeremy, uh, he's done some training and he's like, well, well, we'll just keep an eye on it. I'm like, Okay, great. So, yeah, so, uh, so that night, uh, Brian Trias happened to send me a message asking how things were going on the trip. And so I kind of explained what was going on and said, man, if you could pray, I don't even know what to do right now. You know, just, just pray for me because I, I don't know what's going to happen. And so, uh, so I had him and the pastors praying for me and uh, tried not to scare the team or Diane too much. So I didn't really let on kind of how I was feeling. Uh, but that night I just spent a lot of time praying, a lot of time uh, reading my Bible, just trying to ask God to give me strength, to give me faith, to face whatever it is that's going to come, and just to trust him. Uh, so the next morning we got on a plane, I texted Diane, and I just prayed and prayed and prayed the whole time. And I mean, ultimately it ended up fine. All the swelling went down eventually after a couple of days, and the tingling stuff went away. Um, you know, but uh, it was a great reminder of how frail my life is. And ultimately it came down to this Psalm one thirty nine sixteen. your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You know, I had to believe that the Lord was in control, that he would see it through and take care of everything according to his plan, including my wife, my kids and my very life. I had to trust him. Everything that I was afraid of losing, I had to trust him with it. You know, I think we all fear death on some level because we're not sure. We're not 100% sure. We're not sure what's going to happen to our loved ones. We're not sure that we've lived the life that we needed to live. We're not sure 
that he's going to take care of everything. We're not sure that the life after this life is going to be better than the one we're currently living. We think this might be the good life. And so we kind of camp out here and put our roots down here thinking this is where our home is forever because we're just not sure. So our question today is how can we be sure in the face of death? And I think one of the best examples we have of a Christ follower facing this fear of death is the Apostle Paul. Now, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he wrote on this earth, and it, he wrote it when he was waiting for his execution, and he wrote it to Timothy, who was basically his son in the ministry. He poured in everything into this guy's life, preparing him to take over when he was gone, and he knew this was going to be it, and so Paul said everything he had left to say to Timothy after all this time that they had spent together, this was kind of his last will and testament that he wrote to Timothy. And I'd encourage you to read it and just see the courage in him. But what he says at the end of the letter in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul didn't flinch in the face of death. I mean, do you hear that? You hear the confidence in his words, the certainty of what's to come after he dies. He didn't fear death. He saw it for what it was. So why was Paul so sure? Why was Paul so confident with his death looming on the horizon? How could he be so sure about what was going to happen? So today I want us to look at Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles now. I've said it before, echoing many others, but I believe Romans 8 might be the greatest chapter in the Bible, if you can say such a thing. It clearly reminds us of the bedrock of our faith, our trust, our confidence, our hope for today and for the future, our assurance, our strength to face trials, our comfort, our motivation for risking for the sake of the gospel. It's all there. And I think Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, actually believed this stuff. And I think if we believe it too, if we grab hold of the truths that he shares in Romans chapter 8, I think we can have that same kind of confidence when we face death. So we're going to take a walk through the big ideas of this chapter because there's a lot to take in here. So we're going to kind of take a 30,000 foot view of Romans chapter 8 and camp out at a few places. Uh, But I'd encourage you to go back and spend a a lot of time this week maybe reading it. As we go through it, I want to let two words kind of help us guide us and help pull things together for us in, as we go through this chapter. And there there are two words that we use a lot, maybe. Uh, We've said it before, probably, and I'm sure we've all heard it. But they're words that we kind of gloss over, and we don't really grab the full weight of their meaning. And those two words are rest assured. When we rest assured, we can relax. We can quit striving and working and feeling the pressure to perform for God and for others, and we can begin depending and trusting in something, or in this case, someone. There's a confidence and a certainty that comes with the weight of this phrase, and we can trust in a truth that guides us and supports us and holds us up and reminds us of what's real, even when we can't see it and we can't feel it. And I think Paul is showing us here how we can rest assured in Christ. So his first point is this, beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We can rest assured that the verdict is in for our lives. 
This is the foundation and the hope of all the promise that we have in Christ, what he shares right here. And it starts out with a statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Throughout the Bible, the word condemnation is kind of held up against this word justification, and they're diametrically opposed to one another. And they're both judicial terms used throughout the Old and the New Testament. And what they mean are verdicts that are given. So to condemn is to give a verdict of guilty, and to justify is to give a verdict of not guilty, or acquit someone of a crime. They do not necessarily mean that someone is innocent or guilty, but they're a verdict that's given. We can see that in Proverbs uh, 17 and 15, or 17 verse 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's a judicial verdict that is given. And you see, apart from Christ, we were slaves to the flesh, which is in the New Testament used to describe this, this worldliness that drove our decisions, our behavior, our choices. And we were living for this world only as if this were all there was. And we were incapable in that mindset of fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And the outcome of this way of life was a fitting verdict of guilty before a righteous God. Because if he is a perfectly righteous judge, he must condemn sin and wrongdoing and evil. He wouldn't be a good judge if he didn't. But in Christ, Paul explains that we have been given the verdict of not guilty. Not because of anything we've done to earn it. Remember it says the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do it. But because God did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now what this means is that the Father sent his only son Jesus to be our substitute. Christ went to the cross in our place, bearing our sin on his shoulders, and God poured out his full wrath and condemnation for sin on Jesus instead of us. Jesus paid the penalty and the punishment for our crimes so that we could be set free. Not only did Christ perfectly fulfill the justice of the law by taking the penalty for our sin, but he also fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law with his perfect obedience to the law through his life. And Douglas Moo says this, The law's just demand is fulfilled in Christians not through their own acts of obedience, but through their incorporation into Christ. He fulfilled the law, and in him believers also fulfill the law perfectly so that they may be pronounced righteous, free from condemnation. In grasping Christ by faith, people are accounted as really having done the law. His righteousness gets credited to our account. Martin Luther says this in his book on Christian liberty. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and condemnation. And now let faith come between them and sin's death and condemnation will be Christ's while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. 
Justification means this miracle, that Christ takes our place and we take his. Now we talk about these kind of ideas a lot around here. But I want you to take a moment to let that sink in. This is the most astounding, most incredible, most beautiful, most wonderful, and most ridiculous thing imaginable. That the God of the universe would bear our sin in death so that we could be set free. We know our reality. We know how foolish we are sometimes, how sinful, how selfish we are. But when God sees us in Christ, he sees us as having fulfilled the law perfectly. He sees us as completely righteous in Christ. We are covered by Jesus as our substitute, both by his atoning sacrifice for our sin and by his perfect life of obedience. He has done it all for us, church. We can rest assured that the verdict is in on our lives if we are in Christ, and it's permanent, because it doesn't rest on us. It rests on him. We don't have to fear death anymore. J.I. Packer says that justification is the primary blessing for the believer because it sets a stage and opens the door for every other good and perfect gift that God wants to give us in Christ. And that brings us to our second point. We can rest assured that this is not our home. Romans eight twelve through 18, it says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We just sang about this. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then go ahead and skip down to 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this passage, we see that because God has justified us and given us his spirit, which has brought us to life, we are now also adopted as children of God. And as children, this passage says, we can call out to God as our Abba, Father, which is something similar to Daddy or Papa. We don't have some distant Heavenly Father who doesn't care and doesn't know us, but he is close, and he cares for us, and he loves us, and he has chosen to make us his sons and daughters in Christ. And if we are his children, then we're also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it says. We are being prepared as brothers and sisters of Jesus, adopted into the family. And in the first century, that was a big deal because adopted children received the inheritance along with the natural-born family. Like We get to participate and share in the inheritance of Christ for all eternity, all the blessings of God. There's something better waiting for us, church. 
Paul explains how we're eagerly waiting for something to come because of what Christ has done for us. We have a hope that transcends this life. We have a hope that we can't see yet, but we know that it's coming. We may experience suffering and heartbreak and persecution and trials in this life. So we have to wait for it with patience. And it may not be easy, but we can know that this is not our permanent residence, that we have something in store for us. Something far better, something beyond our comprehension, something that will leave us, I think, in stunned silence. Uh, there was a man named William M. Dyke, and he was born in England, and at 10 years old, he lost his sight and went blind. And fast forward to college, he met a girl, and this girl was the daughter of the Admiral of the Navy. And he asked for her hand in marriage. And the Admiral said, I'll grant her hand in marriage under one condition. And that condition was that he would have what was at the time a risky surgery to restore his sight. So William said, I'll do that under one condition. And that condition was that he wouldn't have the gauze removed from his eyes until he was standing at the altar and saw his bride. He wanted her to be the first thing he saw. So the wedding date was set, and they went forward. Uh, the admiral's walking his daughter down the aisle, and William is waiting at the altar for his bride. And his best man is slowly unwrapping the gauze from his eyes, piece by piece. And as his bride arrives at the altar and turns to face him, the last piece of gauze is removed from his eyes. And nobody knew at this point if the surgery had actually worked, if he had actually been able to see now. And so everybody's waiting eagerly, kind of like, okay, What's he going to say? What's he going to do? I mean, now that he can see again. And he just stands there in silence. He doesn't say a word. And just stares at his wife. And then after a long pause, he says, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Church, I think the same thing is going to be true for us when we see Jesus face to face, when we see eternity, when we see and experience his presence in full for the first time. It'll be beyond anything that we could have ever dreamed or imagined. We have something better waiting in store. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We don't have to fear death. We can rest assured that our true home is waiting for us. The third point is this, that we can rest assured that God's plan will not fail. For Paul goes on to explain how the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us because we don't even know how to pray for the things we really need to be praying for. And so the Spirit knows and asks the Father for those things according to the will of God for us to help us through. And then we read in Romans 8, 28 28 and 29, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So according to this passage, God's ultimate good purpose for us is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. And why is that? And it goes on to say, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are being prepared as brothers and sisters of Jesus for our inheritance that is waiting for us. And he's working his perfect plan for each one of us. Sometimes the best way for that to happen is through suffering and through loss. Because some things just need to be chipped away in us for us to look more like Jesus, as painful as it may be. But rest assured, if you are in Christ, this is going to happen. One day, your character will reflect the character and the goodness of Jesus. 
We don't always know what those steps will look like, what that plan will look like. We can't look out and say, okay, I'm going to go through this, 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 and this, right? That'd make things a lot easier. (laughs) But we can trust that God is working his plan, working it together for good for each one of us, and it will not fail, even in death. Finally, Paul tells us this. We can rest assured that nothing will undo his promise. Romans 8, 31 and following says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think back to the beginning of this chapter, what he said about that. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. We are secure in the promise of God. And it's not by our own working or effort, refer back to point one. If this guarantee were secured by our own works, Paul says in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 that it would be a wage that was earned, not a promise that was given. But like Abraham, it's ours by faith if we believe in his promise. And this is what it said about Abraham's faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We must believe, trust him, and rest assured in the promise of God that he will see it through and keep us no matter what we face in this life, even our own deaths. We don't need to fear anything, church, because our hope is still coming. All right, so we look at the Apostle Paul and we think, okay, first century, the life expectancy was what, 35 to 40 years? I mean, he was going to die soon anyway, so of course he was kind of ready for this. Okay, so let's, let's talk about a more recent example. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's, he's one of my heroes in the faith. And uh, he was born in Germany along with his twin sister Sabine on February 4th, 1906. In 1918, his oldest brother Walter was killed in World War I. And at age 14, Dietrich decided he would be a theologian. After college and seminary and some study abroad opportunities in New York, he returned to Germany in 1931. And on February 1st, 1933, when he was nearly 27 years old, two days after Adolf Hitler was installed as Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer was one of the first to publicly attack Hitler's leadership, which he did in a radio address that was abruptly cut off in the air. It seems from that point on, he was a marked man by the Nazi regime. In 1935, he began establishing underground seminaries to train pastors because the state-sanctioned Church of Germany had begun aligning itself to Hitler and his beliefs. He was declared a pacifist and an enemy of the state. 
He had his authorization to teach at Berlin University terminated. And soon his seminary was closed by the Gestapo. And soon after, 27 former students and pastors were arrested. Still, he continued training pastors after this in what has been called seminary on the run. They would meet in different homes and other locations where they couldn't be found. Eventually, he was forbidden to even live or work in Berlin. And in February, he became actively involved in the political resistance with several family members. And he joined the effort to assassinate Hitler, uh, to form a plot to do so, because he couldn't stand by in silence and let Hitler continue to destroy so many lives without doing anything about it. His role was communicating with various parts of the resistance and with the Allied forces about their plans. And while he had many opportunities to leave Germany to safety, he decided to stay because he said, I cannot pretend to come back and help fix all of this when it's done if I don't stay and suffer together with my people. Soon he was prohibited from public speaking in order to report regularly to the police. And then he was forbidden to even publish because of his subversive activities. Early in 1943, he was engaged to Maria von Venemeyer. And then on April 5th of 1943, he was arrested and held in Tegel Prison in Berlin. On April 29th, he was charged with subversion of the armed forces and interrogated intensely. In 1944, after the failed map room bomb, the Gestapo discovered files that exposed Bonhoeffer's involvement in the plot to take Hitler's life. And he was soon moved to a concentration camp, and then another, and then a prison, and then another concentration camp, and so on for the next year. Hitler had ordered the death of everyone involved in the conspiracy to assassinate him, so it was only a matter of time for Bonhoeffer. Fast forward to April 8th, 1945, the Sunday after Easter. Bonhoeffer was asked by his fellow prisoners in this makeshift schoolhouse prison where they were staying to lead a service for them that Sunday. And so he read from Isaiah 30, uh, 53, 5, which says, By his wounds we are healed, and 1 Peter 1, 3. And he preached a message of hope and comfort in the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. And as soon as he finished praying after his message, two men walked in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And everyone knew what that meant. Bonhoeffer pulled aside an English prisoner that he had befriended, Uh, because he had friends back in England, and he asked him to pass along the word. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. From there, he was moved to Flossenburg Concentration Camp and court-martialed, where he did not give a defense for himself. And Bonhoeffer was hanged naked on the gallows at 39 years of age at dawn on April 9th, 1945, just a few weeks before the war ended. A doctor who observed his death said that in all his years as a doctor, he had never seen someone die so completely submissive to the will of God. His body was burned on a pile of other bodies. And his friends say that he would have been honored to die just like the Jewish people that he had fought so hard to protect. So listen to what Bonhoeffer said in a sermon back in 1933 while he was preaching in London 12 years before his death. No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour. Waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. Whether we're young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? 
And which of us knows how near he or she may already be to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power. If only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we're only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in all the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it's not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. We don't know how long or short our respective races will be, church. We don't know what hills we'll have to climb or valleys we'll have to walk through. But what we can know is this. Our Redeemer lives, and we will live with him. Because the verdict is in. This is not our home. God's plan will not fail, and nothing Nothing can undo his promise. Rest assured. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the confidence and the hope that we have because of Jesus. That it doesn't rest on our own merit and what we bring to the table, but it rests on him. His finished work for us, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. We are made alive together with him. Lord, thank you for the gift of life that you have given us through your son. And Lord, when we think about death, change our perspective. Give us courage to face our fear and to do the things that you've called us to do, to live the lives you've called us to live, to go the places you've called us to go for the sake of the gospel, because this is not our home and we are heading towards you to see you face to face. Lord, stir our hearts and give us confidence as we face the things in this life, knowing that you are working your plan together for our good. And that one day we will be with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.